Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Setting the Scene. My name is Michael. I'm the host for today's podcast. And on the sixth overall episode and fourth episode in our series, Money Management Independence, we are joined today by Dr. Spath. Before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience listening in? Hey, thanks so much for having me here. Uh, my name is Disha Spath. I'm an internist and hospitalist at um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Putnam Physicians and St. Peter's Hospital in upstate New York. I also write about finance and generally nerd out about finance at the Frugal Physician. And uh, I like to talk about how to save money and find good deals and uh, pay off student loans and manage student loans and all that kind of stuff on uh, the frugalphysician.com. Perfect. So I know that you started your journey with becoming involved with finances when you started out with student loans, right? And mm-hmm. bounce back from those in just a year and a half, which is pretty quick. What was the journey of bouncing back that quick and how did you progress through it? Were there some lessons along the way, some mistakes that you made that people listening in can learn from? Yeah, uh, I'm sure there are many mistakes, <laughs> but what happened was I just finished my residency training and started as an attending, and um, I was at that point just starting my family as well. I just had a baby. I was on a maternity leave. Um, I did one year working as a full-time hospitalist, and I had another baby, um, and uh, I was the only one working at the time because my husband was doing his master's, and uh, so money was tight. Things were stressful, and I really felt like we didn't have um, a good understanding of what was happening in our financial life at all. And that was creating a lot of stress in my life and in my husband's life indirectly as well. And so when I was on my second maternity leave, I decided, you know, this is a good time to start figuring out what's happening in our financial life. Um, We had this goal of being financially independent through rental properties, but we didn't feel like we had any room to make progress on that because we were paying so much to student loans and uh, so much for our mortgage and our lifestyle. And um, so there was really no room between our income and expenses at that time. Um, And so we decided to just get wiser about it and uh, become more mindful of where our spending was, what our debt was. And in that process, we decided to start knocking down the debt because the debt was really affecting our cash flow, um, especially the student loans. Back in that time time frame, um, PSLF was not working very well, and um, I was also working for a for-profit employer, so that wasn't really an option for me. So I decided to go ahead and just knock down my loans as fast as we could, um, and my husband was totally on board with that. So we started a debt snowball, and where we went for our smallest debts first and then tackled the bigger debts. But, you know, I have to be, uh, so what a snowball is, is you start with the smallest amount of debt and you don't pay attention to the interest rate and you just go from smaller to bigger to bigger. You put all your extra money towards the smallest loan and then from from that to the bigger one and roll all that money. Um, So it effectively does this like psychological game of giving you positive feedback and um, and continuing your journey and encouraging you by getting small wins initially. So we paid off our two cars initially, and then uh, we went for my student loans, which were at 200,000. Now we did skip a rental property. Our rental property mortgage at that time was 140,000. We still haven't paid that off. We decided to leverage that debt, but we decided to pay off the student debt because the student debt was not bringing in any 
income irrespective of my time. The, the rental property would bring me income despite having that debt. So we decided to keep it. Wow. I actually, that's the first time I heard about the snowball method you were talking about with um, how it would allow for, you know, positive, um, positive thoughts about, you know, continuing that journey. I, that's the first time I thought about it um, or even heard about it. So it's really interesting to hear outside of, outside of obviously, you know, having the positive kind of feedback to continue on with that. Are there any other things that that would be beneficial towards like with the actual interest rate that accumulates anything like that? Yeah. So let me actually expand on the two different thoughts about debt uh, repayment. Um, So the biggest thing to take away is that it's the most effective when you're taking all of your extra money in a month and putting it towards just one debt. Um, And by extra money, I mean everything after uh, your basic needs are accounted for, your minimum payments on all your debts are accounted for, whatever extra you have at the end of the month, put it towards one instead of all of them. And that's way more effective. Now the debt, there are two types of, there are two thoughts of repayment strategies. One of them is the debt snowball and the other one is debt avalanche. Um, the snowball Uh, The theory is you start with the smaller loan, you get the snowball rolling down the hill, it gathers more speed and more motivation, and that way you get to paying off your big goals at the very end. Um, With the uh, debt avalanche, you go for the highest interest rate debt first. Um, So you pay off, say, a credit card that is at 15, 18, 20%. Then you pay off, say, a student loan that is at 6% um, or was at 6%. Thankfully, our interest rates are much better now. But um, so you go for the interest rate uh, first. Those are the two strategies. And it works differently for different people. People that are really uh, numbers minded um, would benefit from doing the avalanche method. But for the average person, um, who is less numbers minded and more emotionally motivated, which um, I feel like a good percentage of the population is, the do- debt snowball works better. Um, the difference between the two is minimal if you stick to it. Um, the debt avalanche is more efficient um, money-wise. You would save more money doing uh, paying off the higher debt first. Um, and it also depends on what kind of debts you have. So if you really do have credit card debt at 20%, I would be remiss if I told you not to pay that off first you know, dependent. So um, the the really toxic high interest debt, I think, um, goes first no matter what, uh, but it's kind of up to your judgment. Like I kind of was talking about um, with the my, our rental properties, we decided we didn't really do a pure snowball because if we had, we would have gone for the rental property next before the student loans because they, it was a smaller number, but um, we didn't because it's a different type of debt and we just didn't want to pay that off, you know? So um, it, I think it's very situation dependent, but as long as you're going from one debt to the next and um, making a plan and sticking with it, you are going to be successful. Oh, I mean, it definitely attests to the theme of overall consistency with mm-hmm. financial management, which I, I'm sure that everyone has heard of before, but it's interesting to hear those two techniques, um, two methods that I'm not sure, I'm personally not really familiar with it, but it's useful to know more insight that we can gain. Um, so moving from that, where you were able to bounce back from debt uh, and you overall, with that said, you, you became a little more, um, you were kind of forced to become a little more involved with your finances. 
How did yeah. you find your way to eventually becoming a financial blogger to help others out? It was a, it's kind of a funny story. I find it funny that I'm in this position of uh, teaching other people about it, but it's really, it's fun. It's really fun. I like it. And that's why I've kept it going. And I think that's why I got into it. You know, um, I, uh, after, after starting our repayment journey, after paying off the first two cars in about six months, then we went for the student loans. Um, in the next six months, we had paid off a hundred thousand dollars of student loans in six months. Um, so when we got to that point, I was like, wow, well, how did this happen? I didn't think we would be moving the needle on this this fast. Um, and I was I was in shock. And I decided to, in order to try to process like what happened, I decided to write it down. And when I did in a, uh, I wrote it down in kind of a, you know, storytelling fashion. And I wanted it to publish it somewhere. And my husband was like, hey, why don't you start uh, blogging? Um, and he's, he's really into the online space. I really wasn't, um, but he, uh, you know, encouraged me to do that. And he's really the, the wind beneath my wings. So I'm really glad to uh, have his expertise because he's also an IT guy. Um, so I'm the face, but he's kind of, you know, he's, he's in the background and doing everything. Um, so, um, and he's always pushing me on. So that's, that's really amazing. And so that's how really I got started. I published, he kind of walked me through how to find the information on starting a blog. I kind of put it out there. I shared it a couple of places. And then all of a sudden it started getting shared everywhere. Someone posted it on PMG and then it just went viral. And, uh, and it just kind of took off from there. We just, I just got lucky. Okay. Wow. I mean, segueing off of that point that you mentioned um, with how your husband really helped with the IT side of things, it really mm -hmm. also attests to the networking, not only with partners, but just in general with any people. Um, what are yeah. your thoughts on how to best network, especially as pre-meds? We're kind of early in the game. We haven't even got to medical school, residency, or even as attending. So we really have a lot of time ahead of us, a lot of experience to gain. What is, what is your advice on how to best network, particularly in terms of financial management to get those um, connections and better help us later along the journey with managing finances? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think in general, how best to network um, is to make that time to get on the phone call or get on this, uh, on a video call with someone and really take that time to introduce yourselves and kind of get to know each other and then invest in the relationship going forward, you know, check in um, and see how they're doing, how you can help them, how they can help you kind of thing. And um, I've, I've had really great success in this field, making friends by um, just be, by being out there and blogging and promoting other people's work. And then they promote my work. And it's a, you know, it's a, a mutual relationship where it's beneficial to both parties. Um, and also just being out there in the space, people are reaching out to me all the time now, um, which is really awesome um, to be considered like when you find a niche to write about or be out there with, um, then people reach out to you and then you can uh, make those connections that way. Um, as a person who's not like a finance blogger, how to get the best connections in the finance field. Um, I would say go to the finance uh, conferences. There are a lot of them now. Um, there are a lot of Facebook groups. There are a lot of Instagram uh 
personalities as well, TikTok. Um, there are a lot of people out there and they're honestly, by and large, I know most of them personally, and I will say by and large, they're really good people that just want to help people, you know, and if you just reach out and ask like, hey, who do you recommend for this thing or that thing? Or like, can you teach me a little bit more about this? Like they will, they will give you advice and they'll give you good advice. And they'll, they'll tell you what books to read or what groups to join. Um, there are a lot of free conferences out there and you can network that way. Um, and you don't even have to leave your house now. It's all virtual. So um, I think there are a lot of people out there wanting to help doctors get financially wise. And um, if you just reach out, you'll be able to find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it speaks to, although a lot of people think that finances is a greedy game, it speaks mm -hmm. to how um, there are genuinely honest and helpful people out there to help um, with that. Uh, that yeah. kind of also translates onto the point of financial, just the sensitivity behind talking about it. Um, right. some, some people who might not be as experienced with talking about it, when they first are approached about it or when they first try to approach others about it, they might feel a bit sensitive to talk about this or that, especially when it comes to things like, you know, sensitive numbers like income, other things mm -hmm. like that. Um, mm -hmm. When we're talking about financial advice, if you're networking with someone, how much do you think is okay to talk to them about and how much do you think you should, you know, keep for yourself as personal information? Well, I'm an open book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, most of my information is out there. Um, and uh, I tend to be a, a pretty open about all that stuff. And um, I think that has really helped me um, have some honest conversation with, conversations with other people. I know other people are not so honest about how much they make, what their benefits are, blah, 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 right? And I think it's good. So when you are talking to other people, like in, in the field who might make more or less than you, I, th I think it's, it's important to be sensitive to that. If I was a cardiologist making, you know, 500,000, I probably wouldn't be talking about it as much as, you know, a primary care doctor at the lowest end of the physician compensation. Um, so I think it's easier also for me to talk about it because of that. Although now that I, I talk on the, um, major media stage of, uh, you know, of CNBC. I, I write for NBC Universal every once in a while as a freelancer um, on their personal finance site. And I got to say, there's a lot of hate for, about towards doctors and how much we make. And even a primary care doctor, people are like, oh, you know, you're like, of course it's easy for you. You're a doctor. I'm like, but I'm the poor doctor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but people don't really get that. And, you know, and that's, that's the negative of sharing your information with people. So, when you share, you take the risk of getting backlash from people that don't make as much as you. But I think in general, it leads to a more genuine conversation, a more truthful conversation. And that's why I'm here. I'm not, I mean, my, my blog is very open book and I try to be as genuine as possible because what's the point otherwise, right? Um, I think between professionals, we should be open and honest and share our compensation because this is important for all of us to do better, right? Um, if one makes less, one makes more. Um, but be sensitive to people outside of medicine that don't have the privilege of making our salary, but also don't understand how much um, time and uh, student loan burden we need to take to, to get there, right? Mm -hmm. um, most people don't appreciate that. Yeah. But um, yeah. 
Yeah, and actually uh, mentioning student loan and financial independence, I want to go into that too. So mm -hmm. student debt and student loans are one thing, but financial independence is another. Um, one is kind of on the negative side of things, one is more on the you know positive side of things in terms of net worth. Uh, but I'm sure that all in all, many physicians, many aspiring physicians too, not only want to eliminate student debt, but also further expand themselves to reach financial independence. You talk about that a lot of times in your blog. And past student debt, what are some ways you have found most useful to attain that financial independence that everyone's looking out for? So there are, so the whole concept of financial independence is that you have enough income coming in from sources that are not dependent on your time to, uh, to finance, to pay for all of your needs and all of your debts. Um, and so, and all of your wants, right, as well. Um, so you want your entire life to be paid for by passive income. The passive income can be created in different ways. Um, you have rental properties that you, that can bring in rent if you want, um, stocks and bonds that can bring in dividends and um, other passive income streams such as uh, franchises or, you know, uh, trademarks. So the whole concept is that to build this financial independence, you have to make the choice to not spend all your money on stuff. <laughs> so as long as there's as long as all of your income doesn't go out in expenses, then you can take whatever amount you save and put it towards building and buying things that are going to create income. Things that create income are assets. Um, so assets start to bring in more income, start to create more space into your income versus expenses. And that's how the wealth building cycle progresses. You have your salary coming in, you have your passive income coming in, you take the Delta, you reinvest, you reinvest, you get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, it's, and at some point you don't have to work anymore. And then you can just choose to work because you want to, and you can only do the stuff that you like doing because you don't have to do it. Absolutely. That's, that's a great insight into, you know, um, making retirement more optional than kind of delayed and forced. Uh, exactly. It just also provides peace of mind in that way. Um, yes. And, you know, in medicine, it's so important that doctors be, doctors are so wanting to be non-financial, right? Uh, it's considered a virtue not to have to worry about money. But unfortunately, if you don't pay attention to your money, if you don't have any financial independence, money does rule you. The only way to be free of money is to be financially independent and not have not need it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's like some doctors who really prefer the clinical side of things, even though they might be stuck in a private practice where they have to deal with paperwork and administration, things like that. So yeah. um, it is what it is. But in the end, passion for health is our goal. And exactly. I wanted to also kind of segue on to the point you mentioned about savings or at least making sure that you're not spending exuberant amounts of money. While there is a significant boost in income while someone goes from the transition of residency or fellowship to then an attending, do you think it's still wise to keep that conservative, conservative sense of still living as a resident, even though you're in your first few years of attending, of being an attending? So I think I'm all for that. Um, because that, when we start out, we've lost 10 years of retirement investing um, in medical school and residency and fellowship training, um, at least 10. So 
you're already behind. Um, and I hate to say it because there's so much delayed gratification, right? That 10 years, you're not, you're living like a resident for 10 years and now you want to not live like a resident. And I get that. Um, and I was definitely in that boat too. And just take it from me, when you inflate too fast, it only makes your life miserable. It only makes things more stressful. Um, and you can't be that rich, happy doctor you want to be when you're stressed out about money and you kind of, and there's so much guilt involved in like, well, I'm making double six figures and why am I struggling with money? Like I must be really bad at it. You know, there's a lot of guilt involved with not feeling like you uh, have a handle on your financial situation. And it's so easy. Um, it's so easy if you can live like a resident for another couple of years to give yourself that financial cushion um, to build up your retirement savings and also like your other savings, start a brokerage account, uh, create an emergency fund that's actually six months of your living expenses and, um, and have that cushion there. And then after that, you can inflate kind of slowly and measuredly in a measured fashion. And it's so much more enjoyable. It's so much less stressful. Um, and it really lets you focus on, you know, what you should be focusing on, which is your patient and your families, your patients and your families. Absolutely. I also want to continue the talk about we had financial independence. So a lot of people might be wondering, how do I kind of route that? What's the journey I should take? Obviously, each person is different. Just like we have different medical journeys, we also have different journeys to financial independence. Mm -hmm. uh, but are there some unique examples you can recall of physicians you know of who were able to reach financial independence in um, not as typical ways, just unique ways? Maybe some people listening here would be interested to hear. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people making um, money during weird, you know, different stuff. I mean, you've got people in real estate that are just leveraging um, rental properties and have over uh, over a hundred properties that they're getting money out from. There's someone who is um, uh, buying, actually, just renting properties and then subletting them and on the Airbnb, like Airbnb and making money off of that. There are people on, in the online space that are leveraging the influencer thing and making money off of that. There are many, so many ways to make money. The difference, um, but I think really it's not, you don't have to hit it. You don't have to hit a jackpot. You really don't. You don't even have to try that hard. The good, the amazing thing about being a doctor is that you have a big income um, and you can choose exactly how big you want your lifestyle to be. Um, and honestly, even like a resident lifestyle is not a bad lifestyle. It really isn't, you know, compared to the rest of the world. Um, so you really can choose, you know, whether you want to, um, and this is what I focus on as a frugal position is that you have the power to build wealth simply by doing doctoring. And all you do is you invest and max out all the tax advantage space available to you. So that is your 401ks, your 403bs, your 457s, your um, 40, uh, solo 401ks, your Roth IRAs, your HSAs, your FSAs. There's so much tax advantage space available to you that'll help you, number one, um, pay less in taxes because you're doing the stuff the government wants you to do and playing the game you they want you to play, which is incentivizing good behavior of saving. Um, and just, uh, just put it in, you know, 
index funds that are super uh, conservative. You can do um, S&P 500, you could do uh, bond market funds. So if you have a, a one bond market fund, one S&P 500 type fund, and one international fund, that's all you need in order to build wealth and fi get financial independence early. Like you really don't need to do anything special. Um, just put max out all the accounts available to you, start a brokerage, bro brokerage account, and you can buy the same types of funds in the brokerage accounts. And you'll see that as long as you're not spending all your money, it is really quite simple to build up that financial independence. Most of the people that I know that have done it have done it with three funds. That's just BTSAX, BBTLX, and I forget the one with the international fund. But in any case, you just buy these funds and these, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, so like don't go out and buy it just because I said so, but these are really great funds. And I think one, because they are low cost um, and they're index funds, they mirror the rest of the economy. Um, and as long as America is still a superpower, they'll continue to increase. And at least at least as long as America still exists and still pays its debts, which is kind of a caution all at the moment. But <laughs> but uh, but as long as you're you're betting that the entire economy will eventually thrive and, and do fine. Um, so anyway, so really my point being you don't need to do anything crazy in order to become financially independent early most of the people that i know that are financially independent in their 40s simply just maxed out their uh, retirement accounts and had maybe a brokerage account for the rest of the stuff mm -hmm. and it sounds like all of this um th these these routes to financial independence they really are are weighted in your investment with passive income with index funds with savings but it kind of takes away from what most people would think about when they first think of a physician salary with your active income. Do you think there's much groove room in terms of how much you can en enhance that with different compensation models, being part of employee versus private practice, things like that? Is there much yeah. groove room for how you can improve that? Or is it absolutely. really found in the passive income and other resources? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. We haven't talked about how to increase your income as a physician. And that's certainly, you know, a very great avenue to and things to talk about. I'm not an expert at that. <laughs> but yes, you can um, definitely work on the income side. And then and that helps the delta grow. So you can either spend less or grow income or do both. And then you just do it everything faster. Um, but yeah, so if you do surveys, there's um, medical surveys out there that'll help you, um, you know, make a little extra cash. And anytime you can do, the surveys are good because you can also get some 1099 income. So you can put some money in the solo 401k, um, which basically opens up a whole other retirement savings account for you. So if you can get any 1099 income, that's a really great way to um, enhance your investing ability and, and also get extra money, right? Um, you can uh, do moonlighting. Um, what I found really advantageous and what I do is that I, I work a point, I'm currently 0.7. So what I do is I um, uh, work 0.7 time at my, my full-time job 
Um, and then I do per diem at a, in a different facility because so that gives me flexibility. Um, generally per diem work is high, more highly compensated. And then I can sort of, you know, feel out how I'm feeling that weekend. And if I want to pick up something I can, and if I am otherwise busy, I won't, you know, and it, it builds that flexibility into my life. And I really enjoy that. So, and I could, you know, I could take that to make more money, but I choose not to because, um, it's just not that important to me, but, um, you know, at this point time with my kids is more important to me. Um, so I'm sure at some point that will change us as they get older and stuff, but, you know, building that flexibility is nice and having different, different income streams within medicine, diversifying within medicine is the name of the game. Absolutely. Like just thinking about it, I've heard of, obviously I'm not too, I'm still a pre-med still in my early years in terms of the whole um, the whole big picture of things with medical school residency and all of that mm -hmm. ahead of me, but I've heard of physicians going ahead with um, and really taking their time to create a successful private practice, um, being mm -hmm. able to even do patents for medical devices and mm -hmm. gaining finances through that, which is something that I'm not as familiar with, but I'm sure will uh, is a unique way and is um, a productive way of uh, helping with financial management. Like you mentioned yeah. also Roth IRAs, index funds, savings, passive income, all of those yeah. are great ways to diversify. Um, I also wanted to talk about budgets. So even though a physician might not be the necessarily the first person you would think of who's really taking on a budget, like you mentioned, um, people aren't exactly associating physicians with any need for financial management, um, even being a primary care doctor versus a cardiologist. Um, all across the board, people outside of the field usually think that they're usually well off, but there is still that concern with student debt that you already have ahead of even becoming an attending. Um, so in terms of having a budget, do you see that as an overlooked utility and route to better money management uh, with yeah. budgets as physicians for things like entertainment, food, and other areas of life? Yeah, budgets are awesome. <laughs> I, I'm all about budgets because I don't look at budgeting as restriction. Most people that think about budgeting think of it as that means I can't spend more than $500 on shopping this month. Um, no, right? But like, honestly, budgeting is simply making sure you have enough money for whatever you want to do and don't overspend in other categories that you really don't really want to spend on, but you sort of are doing it mindlessly. Um, and to help reach your goals. Basically, when you have a budget, and you have, when I have a budget and I go out and spend, I go out and spend with less stress because I know I have a budget for that. You know, I know I have $1,000 in my shopping category this month and I still haven't filled it, you know? So I have plenty of room to, to spend guilt-free in that category until I don't. But, um, but honestly, I, the, the good thing about being a doctor is that you can have a pretty generous budget for most of the categories. And that's the, that's the key is, you know, don't make it so restrictive that you hate it. Um, there's no reason to deprive ourselves because we are physicians, but when we do budget, um, when we do look at our, just our income and expenses and take stock of what we're doing and be more, when budgeting in my mind is being more mindful about how we're spending, um, then you can find those hacks and you can find those really painless ways to cut back the, um, the spending without 
without even noticing it. Like um, my big thing is I, I focus on cutting fixed spending. If anything is going to add a fixed spend, um, something that's going to withdraw automatically every month, I want to be really thinking about that because those are the things that drain your account when you're not looking. And that's why people like to give you those options, right? To uh, subscribe forever. Um, so they'll keep, even when you stop using that app or whatever, um, they're still going to keep going until you remember to unsubscribe and to turn that off. And at that point, you've wasted a lot of money. It's just money waste, right? So any if anything is going to be withdrawing from my account automatically, I want to be 100% sure that I'm using it and I want that. Um, and that's what helps me when we're going through our monthly budgets is we're looking at not only are we we're keeping an eye on but not really limiting how much we are spending on things that we want to spend on but we're also keeping a close eye on the the automatic withdrawals absolutely and i was going to ask next what are some other tools that you see going unnoticed and overlooked but i think we covered quite a few of them with like you said savings Roth iras index mm -hmm. funds so many like you said they, they just really allow for a big diversity of options and routes that you can go through. Are there any other tools that you want to add on to um, with that said? Or uh, I would lastly mention, and this is a shameless plug, is that I have a um, list of discounts for healthcare professionals on my site. Um, and that really goes unused, I feel like, by a lot of doctors. There are a lot of doctor discounts out there right now for, especially because of COVID. And that's a silver lining, you know, because, um, because uh, you, we are on the front lines and people want to say thank you, utilize those. Why not utilize those discounts, right? I see a lot of people not using them. So make sure you come to the site. I have an up-to-date, um, mostly up-to-date list <laughs> of discounts. And if they're out of date, please let me know so I can update it. But um, I have people reaching out to me. I have brands reaching out to me all the time asking for me to share their discounts. I'm like, yeah, like, why don't we all share this with each other and why don't we use them? Absolutely. I also wanted to move on to our next point about financial advisors. Just like physicians might usually hire lawyers to review their contracts before they um, agree on any, you know, obviously there's the verbiage there um, that mm -hmm. lawyers would know more of in terms of physician contracts for that active income. In the same way, do you think that it's applicable and helpful to specifically the physician population to have financial advisors managing your finances? It really depends on your um, comfort levels with learning about finance. If you have the time and the um, and the interest in learning about finance, it's actually very, very easy to manage your own finances. Um, but it's certainly not as hard as learning the Krebs cycle. Um, it's really very simple, basic concepts that if you if applied consistently, it's really more about behavior and psychology than it is about facts. Um, so as long as you can do that and keep yourself motivated, then you really don't need an advisor. However, um, if, if you need an advisor, make sure um, they're a fiduciary. That means that they're going to do, they have an obligation to do right by you um, and that they bill you in a way that you know um, that you know that uh, how much they're going to be charging. Um, if they're, if they're iffy about, like if they won't, if you ask them, how do you make money by giving me advice and they can't answer that, then move on because they're going to be charging you fees on the back end. Um, so you want, uh, in general, if I was going to tell a friend that they wanted financial advice, uh, if they were going to a financial advisor, I'd tell them, make sure 
they charge you up front, you know, whatever it is, just ask them for it up front. You don't want fees on the back end because that's going to create a slow drain on the way out on the rate at which you accumulate wealth. A $10 every month really adds up over time. Mm, absolutely. And going back to our other point about active income, um, is it true that active income is kind of like the almost like the basis from which you can then grow out for things like passive income, savings? Uh, there might be a, a stereotype or not necessarily a stereotype, but just a thought um, lingering in the back of your mind that if you're saying primary care versus let's say plastic surgery, that you'd have more um, ability to expand off of that active income into further uh, and more um, or maybe productive, I guess I could say, passive income sources. Mm -hmm. All in all, I guess I could say that that active income would maybe determine how much you can invest in that passive income or um, how well you can invest it just based on how much you have to begin with. Is that a true thought or would that be applicable in any way? I know that obviously having so-and-so amount of money, whether you have 200,000 a year or maybe 600,000 a year, that's obviously going to affect how much you're going to be able to reap out of that when you go into savings. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the actual choices, the options, does it limit it in any way between one specialty and another? That's interesting. Um, so I think it's very person dependent and how about like what you want out of life. Um, I was, when I was choosing specialties, I was between internal medicine and trauma surgery, <laughs> completely opposite. <laughs> and the internal medicine was going to be a segue into cardiology really, but I stopped at primary or, you know, after finishing my internal medicine residency, but, um, but for me, honestly, the money past a primary care salary, I didn't need the extra um, for the kind of lifestyle I wanted. I just wanted, you know, I grew up poor. My mom was a teacher, school teacher, single mom. And, um, you know, we were on subsidized lunches and stuff. So like, I don't need much to feel rich. Um, I, you know, now we have like a upper middle-class home and no food instability and cars that work and, you know, don't have to worry about expenses, which is like, that's, I feel rich. That's all I need, you know? Um, but some other people need a bigger lifestyle to feel like they did, you know, that they, um, they made it or whatever it is. So I think it depends on how much money you need, but it doesn't matter how much you're making. If you spend it all, you're not going to make any progress. So you need to decide for yourself, how much do I need to make in order to save a significant portion of it? And how big do I need to live? Because the number you need to make will, you know, change based on that. And um, I would also say that, you know, I think it would be unwise to choose, especially just because of how much money it makes, um, how, much, my, my, how much money it pays. If there are two things you would love to do equally and one happens to pay more, yeah, sure, go for the other one, you know? But um, I think as doctors, we make a lot in general as based on, as compared to the rest of the population. And the reason I'm out there sharing my story is because I wanna let other primary care and low earner, low earners know that financial independence is also possible for them and that they can make significant progress. Like don't let the thought, the thought that you only make 200 to 
you know, limit you. I mean, that's a humongous amount of money for anyone. Um, and as long as you're wise, you can still make good progress. Absolutely. I just want to wrap up with a couple of few more points. We usually come around to uh, discussing passive income one way or another on this podcast with these episodes in the series. And uh, I just wanted to end with one more point about that. So you mentioned a few sources of passive income, one being real estate investments. I hear that real estate is usually something that you have to take patience with. Uh, it usually takes some time before you can get it up to a level where you're just maintaining it and it almost works for itself from there. Uh, what do you find as the general outline and timeline when looking into real estate investments in terms of... Um, so there are different ways to invest in real estate. One is direct buying and, and being the direct landlord. So there are different ways you can make it more passive. And it's not always um, so involved initially. Um, our, like For example, what Josh and I are doing are buying one property a year. And that one property... Um, you know, needs a little work on the front on the front end, and then it becomes largely passive afterwards. Um, and we can choose not to, if you're busy that year, not to do that property. But you know, that's our goal is to do at least one property a year. Um, and by do, I mean just buy it and rent it out. And hopefully, um, it doesn't need a huge amount of work. But if it does, then I have managers to do that. You know, so um, so even though I directly invest in real estate, I hire property managers because I don't want another job. You know, I would much rather pay someone 100 bucks a month to to deal with all the phone calls and all the contractors and just like send me a check or send me a bill, you know? <laughs> um, so I have enough going on. I don't need to be doing that as well. If I wanted to increase my profit, I could certainly do it myself, but then I might, I might wear myself out. So there's different ways to be more passive with every income, uh, with every investment. And um, it's also, you know, important to have the right people and the, and good people that you can outsource to um, working for you and really investing in those relationships. Um, we've had good managers, we've had bad managers. So like you need to, you know, it, it, it's a process and it does take some work to manage the managers, but, um, but it does have good ROI as well. So it's worth it to me. Um, there are other ways to invest in real estate, such as syndications um, in order to be a syndicate, to invest in a syndication as a limited partner, you need to have um, at least uh, two, $200,000 of income a year per as a single person, I believe. So there's some way, there, there are some, or, or um, at least a net worth of a million dollars, I think. Um, but uh, so in order to uh, invest in um, apartment complexes and like big projects where people are pooling money and one person is doing the management or one person's overseeing the project, but other people are putting their money into it. That's a syndication. So you could do it and it'd be a limited partner, meaning you don't really have any say in how things are managed. You basically get to look at the deal and see if um, it's a, you know, it's a good investment or not from your perspective and then put your money in and then get your money back when the property sold um, and hopefully get some distributions in the meantime. Um, so while I'm, I'm not a uh, expert on that, but I, that's generally what happens in the syndication. So you can certainly do that being a higher earner and um, be, be a completely passive investor in, in real estate. Um, there's all, you can also buy REITs. REITs are index funds that hold real estate. Um, and that's probably the most passive way to invest in real estate. So there are many ways to, um, to invest depending on how the, the more involved you are, 
um, the more control you have over the investment, you know, you know more about the investment. And also you generally, because you're taking more risk, um, get a higher payout. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I you know, being in a pre-med student, I really haven't had the time to look into those things, but definitely interesting to hear about. And I'm sure our audience is definitely getting a lot of insight. So just one last point to wrap up uh, for this episode. If you know anyone wants to learn more about finances, if they're looking for more resources, obviously there's this podcast here, but they just want to dive deep into it and um, get a head start. I know that you have a blog that covers a lot of topics across finances. So for the pre-med and pre-health students listening in, are there any specific posts that you would recommend to them or other resources over becoming more well-rounded with managing finances? Absolutely. So um, yeah, on my blog, uh, uh, read Get Started Budgeting, um, read uh, the basics of investing, um, read there. I have a whole budgeting series where I review different apps and things that you can, tools that you can use to budget. Um, and then I have a doctor's uh, free of debt series where I, I feature doctors that are financially independent, that have paid off all their debts and kind of ask them about their life story and their best advice. Um, I also have a doctor's free of student loan series of uh, people that have paid off their student loans really quickly and what wor worked for them and what motivated to them to do that and, and things like that. Um, in order to get a big picture on finances, um, there are a lot of good people out there writing books. Um, about finance and you know and as med students and we are used to learning about that through uh, learning through books and I think that's a really um, efficient condensed way to learn about finance um, so uh, you can get free books on Libby um, which is uh, the app through your library as long as you have a library card you can um get the audiobooks or Kindle books um, on your phone through that. Um, I would recommend The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Amazing book. I just read that. It's so good. Um, you know, the White Coat Investor writes books. The um, uh, uh, Corey Fawcett has a great um, series of books as well. I would highly recommend his uh, Doctor's Guide to books. Um, Brenda uh, Krugowski writes about um, frugality as well. She has a nice book out there. I know Bonnie Koo's about to put out a book. Um, physician philosopher Jimmy has a book out. So all of these people have really summarized the major points and put them all together. And generally, we're all kind of saying the same thing, okay? We're not like rewriting the book. We're just trying to tell you the basics from our perspective. And different people have insight on different things. Um, but there is a certain formula that works and it's easy. And um, as long as you learn the basics that are presented in these books, um, then you'll be able to do well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also the mental approach, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. if you consider it, is it going to be a hard task or easy task to do that mental um, blockade kind of it, it by itself might yeah. um, demotivate you. Are there right. any last tips that you have for future doctors listening in as to just anything in general for financial management that we haven't already covered? I think generally, um, as long as you prioritize it. And um, the biggest thing is if you can find one night a month to meet with your household team and go over your finances, um, that can be so helpful in just in, in uh, motivating you to do better about your financial situation and make progress. So as long as you're looking at it 
being mindful of your financial life, just like it, it is, it is a part, it's a huge part of your life. And as long as you ignore it, you're not going to have a healthy relationship with it. So just working on a, having a healthy relationship with money and finances, it was so important to prevent burnout, to create that financial freedom so that you can create the life that you really want to live. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Are there any last um, socials maybe you want to uh, throw out there? Your website, I know that you have a website, you have a blog, anything yeah. to throw out there um, for the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm on Twitter at Frugal Physician. I'm at Instagram at Frugal Physician. I'm on Pinterest. I just started a TikTok account. So come show me some love because I think I have like one video and I'm really trying to motivate myself to do more. Um, and I'm on Facebook. Uh, there's a there's a Facebook group called um, the Frugal Physicians. And that's where we share deals and um, frugal insights. And there are a whole bunch of people that are, you know, like-minded and want to get a, you know, and want to know about all the healthcare discounts and things like that. Just come join. And, um, and I'm also, you know, on the frugal position, the page as well. So all I'd right. love to talk to you. Great resources. Thank you, Dr. Spath, for taking time out of your schedule, schedule to join us today. And thank you, you to too. our audience for tuning in to another episode of Setting the Scene. Be sure to look out for our next episode podcast coming soon um, and hope to see you there. Bye.